Good morning. Please follow along with me as I read today's scripture. Today we are reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. Um, And I'd like to open this morning with prayer, if you'll join me. Lord Jesus, as as we approach a text like this that is so incredibly practical, Uh, for our lives, for our outlook, for our families. Uh, God, I pray that we wouldn't lose in that practicality um, the the picture that you would have us see of your love for us. That we would see in our relationship with you a father who sacrificially loves and cares for his children, who is the perfect counselor and teacher, and who's also the perfect disciplinarian. And so God, we thank you that as we, as we come to a text like this, that we have such an amazing picture of what it is to be a parent, and that we also have such a deep sense of what it is to be loved by you. And Lord, even as we were singing this morning, as I was watching Father and Son lead us in worship and hearing Father and Son read uh, the prayers for this morning, and as I was looking around the room and seeing parents with their children worshiping and singing together, my heart is just, my heart is overwhelmed at what you do in the context of one local church as you draw people together as a family. And would we remember as we gather that you are our Father. So Lord, we thank you for the depth of the words that we've sung this morning, for the depth of the things that we've prayed this morning, and for the lessons that you'd have us learn and the way that you'd come us to know, have us to know you better through your word this morning. And it's in your most precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and again, welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. If you're new with us, um, we're glad you're here this morning. For the last three months, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, And if you've been with us, uh, which I know that most of you have, but I want to give just a brief snapshot of kind of where we've been, because it's a beneficial thing, I think, for a church to work through the book of Ephesians, because what we find in it is a picture of how the gospel transforms. So we see in the opening three chapters the way that the gospel transforms us and that it unites us with Christ. That in Jesus Christ we find ourselves becoming a new humanity, that the church is joined together both with one another in unity around the gospel that we believe and more importantly and first joined in with Jesus Christ. That because we are made one in him we are made a new creation, a new people. In fact, Peter's going to go so far as to say that it's a new ethnicity. It's like you're a whole different generation, a whole different tribe that God has called apart and called out for himself. And so that's really what we talked about in those first three chapters, that God set us apart, that he set his love on us, that he pursued us and chased us down, that he adopted us into his family, which is that beautiful picture that we're going to look at in particular this morning. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul makes a shift and he says, Therefore, because this is who you are, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so everything from that point forward are the practical implementations, this this new ethic that we have, the new behavior that we are called to as the people of God. And so each week as we've moved on from chapter 4, verse 1, what we've discovered is that the text becomes more and more narrow in its application 
And that kind of hit its, hit its zenith last week as we began to talk about how the gospel affects the relationships and particularly in marriage. And today is a natural extension of that conversation as we see how the gospel affects children and parents. This is a topic that I love, um, in particular because it's one that I'm, I'm right in the middle of in my own life. So one of my favorite things uh, about, about my life is getting to be a dad. Um, I love the fact that I get to be a dad. I love my boys. Uh, they came in this morning and they ran as fast as they could up here and they gave me a hug. And in fact, this morning um, we had kind of a funny incident at home. I was sitting outside reviewing my notes and Jessica uh, came out of the house and she, she said, uh, yeah, Harvey woke up this morning and the first thing that he said uh, in, in just a, almost a tearful manner was, where is dad? I need waffles. Because that's what I do in our house. That's what I'm, I make the waffles. And so then later, uh, as Jessica was preparing the waffles for the family instead of me this morning, because I was doing some other things, uh, Leo came over and saw what she was doing and said, Mom, do you know how to put the chocolate chips in? Because that's how Dad makes them. <laughs> right? If, you don't, if you're not putting the chocolate chips in the batter, you're not doing it right. And my wife's a great cook. That's the irony of it all, that my sons pick the one thing that I know how to do in our home, which is make waffles. And they use that as the standard by which all future waffles will be judged. But I love being a dad, and so as I read uh, this text, it's at once both encouraging and fun for me, and it's also an incredible point of conviction, because what we read in these instructions are not easy things to read, particularly as we think about the fact that the most formative relationship in a child's life is the relationship he or she has with their parents. I mean, it doesn't take long in our own lives, if you're an adult in this room, to look back and see the way that your interactions with your parent, or perhaps, as the case may be, your lack of interaction with your parent, how that affected and colored and tinted every other relationship that you have. It affects your relationship with your spouse or, or your significant other. It, it, it affects your relationship with children if you have them. It affects your relationship with other people. It is the most informative, or rather, the most formative relationship that you have, but it's also the one that is the most revealing in the life of the parent. So I remember reading a wild book and a, and a book by uh, Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian, and he talks about parenting, and he talked in particular in this one kind of poignant section about the fact that his five kids each bring out something different in him, and what he specifically called out was each child in their own way reveals the flaws in his life. And he said, so really, if I want to be the human that I was intended to be, I need to have 37 more kids to shore up all of these other areas that have gone untouched. But in a lot of ways, the relationships that Paul is talking about, both what we addressed last week, what we'll address this morning, and what we address next week in, in uh, relationship to work, all of these things are, they're laboratories for life. They're a rock tumbler that our life goes through. It's knocking off the sharp edges. It's beveling us down. It's revealing beauty. It's creating something new. But in the process, it can be painful. And so as we look at our relationships this morning, what we want to look at first is how children should approach their parents, and then ultimately in verse 4, how parents and fathers in particular ought to interact with their children. So read with me if you would, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, as Paul uses this word children, he's really using it in two senses. And you can see the two ways that he's using that word if you look at the first two verses. Uh, the first way that he uses that word children is to refer to children chronologically. 
He's referring to their age, and in fact, in particular, in verse 1, he's referencing a young child. In our culture, this would be a minor, someone to whom, uh, someone to whom uh, they owe authority, where there's a, an authority figure or a parent in their life. And his instruction to them, first and foremost, is that your responsibility, if you're a child, is to obey. Now, that's not easy instruction for any child to hear. It's not necessarily even fun instruction for us, but... But even in that short verse, what we see is that there's three different reasons why children are to obey. First of all, notice what he says. He says, children obey for this is right. And in that moment, what Paul is doing is he's appealing to nature itself. He's saying, you don't have to be a Christian to understand this element. Regardless of your theological background, regardless of your spiritual background, your cultural background, your ethnic background, this is something that is universal. There's an understanding that we see in nature itself, and we see it certainly within the context of humanity, that ultimately children are called to obey parents. That to some extent or another, there is a responsibility and an authority that parents have for their children, and that children ought rightly obey. But Paul doesn't leave us in that place because what he's going to appeal to is something even greater than what is naturally born into us in nature and in humanity. And he appeals specifically to divine revelation. If you see in verse 2 where he says, honor your father and mother, that's a reference back to Exodus chapter 20 and the fourth commandment. He's referencing here the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments that were given to us that are meant to be an indicator for how we are to live our life. And what is not to be lost in this at all is what he references in verse 1 when he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So here's what that means. If you're a child in this room and you're interacting with mom and dad and you've got a relationship with them, what it means is that you have a responsibility directly to them to obey. And not only should you obey them because they're your parent, but you should obey them because that is also the way that you obey God. The way that you interact with God, the way that you love God, the way that you show your devotion to God is by obeying and loving your parents. That's the responsibility that we have. And so, uh, so as I, I remember years back um, doing some work with a youth group uh, that I was doing some volunteer work with, and I remember hearing the question all the time, how does my Christianity play out in my family? How does it play out in my life? What does Christianity mean for me? And this is one of the first places I would always go is, do you understand that your first responsibility is to obey your parents in the same way that you would obey God, that you are actually worshiping God? by obeying your parents well. It's the call that's given, particularly to young children. And in some sense, it's very obvious to us, and Paul's making that direct connection, but then notice what he does in verse two, because he's not just gonna leave this in the chronological sense where he's saying, because of your age, you're to obey, because obviously there's an age at which we, we kind of phase out of that portion of our life, but notice then what he says. He then talks about the way that we are to respond to our parents relationally. Verse two. Honor your father and mother. And it's interesting in that moment that of all the words that Paul could have chosen to define the way that we, and this includes everybody in this room, if you were born, this applies to you. This is the standard that's given to us, that the expectation for everybody is to honor their father and mother. And it's interesting that he uses that word honor. He doesn't say obey there, and he doesn't say trust And he doesn't say that you're supposed to have affection. He doesn't say that you're supposed to think highly of them. What he says is you are to honor them. Now, why of all the words did he use that? Well, we already referenced it in one sense. He's referencing here the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. And what he's saying in this is ultimately this is an eternal principle. 
This is something that extends the length of your life, that that in the very same sense that for a young child to obey their parents, they're participating in worshiping God, in the same way for all of us, regardless of your age, when when you have respect, when you have that honor in particular for your parent, that is part of your worship to God and extends the whole of your life. See, this isn't just for young children, it's for all children, and therefore God uses this very specific word, honor. Now, that's important to us because your relationship with your parents changes over time. Right? The, way that a, the way that a child who is a baby interacts with their parent is very different than the way that a 50-year-old interacts with their parent. It's a very different relationship. It's a very different way that they interact. And not only is that a reason that he uses this word honor specifically, but he also uses this word because he knows that there are some parents who are broken and evil. So some of you, depending on your background and your experience, you may have had parents who were hurtful, parents who spoke harshly, parents who were abusive, maybe parents who abandoned you, parents who just weren't around practically. And so for almost any other instruction that Paul could give, there would be a dependency. How can I have affection for someone who's unkind? How can I revere somebody inherently who wasn't around or who wasn't worthy of that reverence? But see, honor is a much bigger idea than any of those other words. Honor is the underlying attitude of the heart towards the parent. So the great Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, notice that God doesn't say, honor your father and mother only when they're honorable. He says, no, theirs is a position. They hold an office and even if they are unworthy of that office, the office, office itself is still to be honored. And that's an important distinction because regardless of how your parents interacted with you, there is an element of honor that is to be displayed. Maybe your parents were untrustworthy or maybe they were unkind. And yet there's still to be this honor. So what does that actually look like? Well, first I want to point out what it doesn't look like. Because for young children, children to whom they still have an authority figure in their home to which they're responsible, the problem that often plays out in that situation is a a young child might say, well, I will obey, but I will not honor. I'll do the things that you told me to do because I know that there's a threat of punishment if I don't do those things, but there is no way I'm going to honor you in the middle of that. And what God is saying in this moment is you've completely missed the point of what obedience is all about. But for an adult, this plays out in one of two ways. Maybe for you, depending on your upbringing, your background, your experience, maybe you give entirely too much emphasis on the responsibility of your parents. Maybe even to this day, depending on what your relationship is like, every decision you make is informed by what would mom and dad think? What would they say? Would they approve of this decision or would they disapprove of it? So much weight in your mind is given over to the opinion of your parents that it might be stifling. Or the converse of that, maybe you don't give, maybe you don't give any kind of honor to your parents because you were mistreated or because the environment isn't what you would have hoped for. But here's the definition that we're going to use this morning for honor. To honor is to treat your parents with dignity and to show concern for their best interest. I'm going to repeat that again. To honor is to treat your parents with dignity and to show concern for their best interest. 
And what you'll notice about that definition is it's not dependent on whether or not somebody deserves, in our estimation of what that word means, of whether or not they deserve honor. Because what you're saying is, is I'm going to give you the dignity that is due another human being, that is due someone in the role of a parent, and I'm going to show concern for your best interest. See, there's something that is innate. There's something that is wired within us, written on our hearts, that recognizes the honor that parents are owed. And when you do not show honor to your parents, it is ultimately your own conscience that will begin to be seared and hurt. It'll begin to play out in painful ways in your own life. And listen, it will expand to every other relationship that you have. So let me put this in a in one particular illustration. So for the last year, uh, I've worked as part of a drug recovery program at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. And so I've had the, the blessing and the opportunity over the course of uh, a little over a year to interact with probably about three, three to four dozen uh, different men who've had substance abuse uh, issues. And so what's amazing to me is that as I interact with them, almost without fail, with just a few exceptions, almost without fail, there was either the lack of a father figure in the home or there was an abusive father figure. And so as one would expect, every other relationship that those men have in their life is colored, influenced, changed, altered, transformed by the relationship that they have with their father because their inherent response is, because dad mistreated me or because dad wasn't around at all, I have no regard and certainly no honor. And while that is completely understandable in a human sense, understand that we're not talking here about the kind of respect that is earned. What we're talking about is the kind of honor that shows dignity to someone by virtue of the fact that they are created in God's image. And as I've had conversations with those men, often what we've come back to is that idea of what is the role of of a father in your life? What is the role or the relationship of a father? What's the way that you view that relationship? Well, how does it it, uh, play out in your interactions? Because to live in a constant state of dishonor, complete disregard for a parental figure, and it shouldn't just obviously be limited to fathers in this moment, although my particular example limited it to that, but to live in a constant state of dishonor towards your parents is something that is inherently painful. It crushes your soul. And in doing so, you are not just punishing your parent, you are ultimately punishing yourself. So Paul then is going to begin to shift this conversation in verse 4 to the role of the father. And look what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I think it's meaningful that, that, that Paul gives uh, this instruction to fathers in particular. So some people would argue, and perhaps your Bibles even translate this verse as parents. That's certainly, uh, there's certainly a lot of applications of this text that could be made for parents. Um, but, but I would argue, looking at this text more broadly, that this should not be applied as broadly to parents as it should be specifically to fathers. In other words, I don't think it was an accident that the way that this is often translated in our Bibles is fathers. And the reason why is this. The word that's translated father in our, in our Bibles is a very different word than the one that is earlier translated parents in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul uses a word that specifically references parents. It's a plural reference, and it references both the idea of a mother and a father. But here, in verse 4, he specifically addresses fathers. I think there's all kinds of reasons for that. And again, I think there's all kinds of application from verse 4 that can be applied to both uh, mothers and fathers. 
But I think here is ultimately what Paul is getting after. Men, fathers, you are responsible to care for the spiritual and emotional well-being of your children. The responsibility to care for the spiritual and emotional well-being of your children falls ultimately to you. I just want to mention this as an aside because the temptation at this moment may be to say, all right, I'm not a father or my kids are out of the house or this doesn't apply to me anymore. And so you just kind of disengage from the rest of the conversation. But let me, let me just invite you to consider all of the impacts of what this verse still means for us. Because for singles or for ladies or for those without kids or for those whose kids are already grown, there is still, there is still much to be gleaned and learned and applied from this text. So let me encourage you not to disengage because Paul's instruction here is really an insight into the character of God. And so if you're in this room and you're single, there is all kinds of application that can be drawn away from this. Not only who God is in your life, the love that he pours out on us, the way that he disciplines us because he loves us, the way that he pursues us and teaches us and counsels us in our lives with him. Not only that, but if you're single in this room and you intend to be married someday, there's all sorts of applications. So men, this is the kind of husband and father that you are called to be in verse 4. And ladies, these are the sorts of qualities that you are looking for in a husband and ultimately a father that we find in verse 4. And additionally, for, for those without children or for those with grown children, understand that these are qualities you should be modeling. Jessica and I over the years have been blessed to have several different couples to to whom we would kind of look to for uh, advice or example on what it is to be parents. People who've demonstrated well the qualities of what it is to be a mother and a father. And so even if you have never had children yourself or if your children are grown, understand that there are countless people around you who need spiritual parents. Countless. And this isn't a new problem. I mean, Paul himself, as a single person, as one who is not married and as one who does not have kids, wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, Paul didn't only interact with the churches and with other believers as their pastor, though he functioned that way, but he also interacted with them as a father. He was one who cared for for them. He was one who loved them. He was one who trained them up. And you've got to imagine that this extended beyond just spiritual instruction. I mean, to think about the impact that you could have being a spiritual mother or a spiritual father to somebody else who does not have that role in their life, maybe who never experienced the love of a mother or father the way that they deserved to experience it, who's never seen the example of what it looks like to be loved by the Heavenly Father in another person. I mean, the opportunities here are endless. But just to be clear, Paul's purpose is not to minimize the role of women or of moms. I mean, all you have to do is look at Paul's heaping of praise on the mother and grandmother of Timothy to see that he has incredibly high value for the role of women and incredibly high value for the role of mothers and grandmothers in particular. I mean, Paul's going to say in 1 Timothy that the role of a mother and a grandmother cannot be underestimated. That there is a lifelong and eternal impact that comes through the role of the mother. So why then does he seem to focus on the role of the father in verse 4? 
So I'll give you my personal reckon first, my own speculation on that, which is I think that Paul writes this because he knows that men have a tendency to undervalue their influence in the spiritual and emotional development of their children. Now, I can't support that from Scripture. That is just my opinion, and so I'm just giving it to you as that. But I have to imagine that there has been enough of a consistency in the nature and the character of men in particular over the past 2,000 years where often men view the role of being one who cares about spiritual things or cares about the emotional well-being, well, that's left to women. God forbid that that be our attitude. God forbid that we hand off the responsibility that we've been given as men, potentially as husbands and fathers in this room, that we just hand that off and ignore the call that we've been given. And I think that Paul writes this because he knows that often that is the approach that men take. Well, that's not, that's not my primary concern. My job is to go out and to make money. My job is to do these things. I'll take care of these particular responsibilities, but I'm going to leave the spiritual and emotional well-being to somebody else. But what Paul says in no uncertain terms here is that parents and fathers in particular are to raise up, train, and teach their children in order to prepare them for independence in order to prepare them for their spiritual walk. So fathers, you are to sacrificially love and lead your family, both spiritually and emotionally. So what does that look like? Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And we're just gonna stop there right, right uh, for a moment because already there's something we need to talk about. Your Bible may translate this as, do not exasperate your children. And that would be another fair interpretation of this idea. But here's what he's saying. Do not parent your children in a way that creates an angry disposition. This isn't saying that, that, no, that, that if you're parenting right that your child will never be angry. All right, that's not the purpose of verse four, but what he's saying is do not parent your child in a way where you are setting them up for anger, where you are building a structure by which they find themselves exasperated and frustrated and angry in their life. And he's gonna give us three particular principles that will keep your child from exasperation. So we're gonna kind of look at this in the reverse. Notice the very next thing he says in verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, or instead, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the discipline and instruction, these are the two first ideas that he addresses. And and the ESV here does a great job of translating this, discipline and instruction. You could also translate this as the idea of correction and counseling. And not counseling in in the sense of a therapist, although certainly that element may play itself into your parenting, but really counseling in the idea that you are coming alongside your child, that you are training them up, that you are teaching them, and that you are doing that hand in hand with discipline, that there is a balance between those two things. So the truth is, everybody in this room, particularly those of you who are parents, you probably have a tendency one way or the other. You probably tend heavily either towards discipline or towards being the counselor. And my guess is even as I say that, you can kind of quickly identify where you fall and where your, where your pitfalls might lie because chances are the way that you are is born of your own experience. 
that you've either mimicked or responded to what you experienced growing up. So maybe you grew up with a, with a parent who was a heavy disciplinarian. Maybe you grew up with someone who was very distant, and that's kind of your picture of what it is to be a parent. And so maybe you've done one of two things. Either that's the natural attitude that you take into your interactions with your children, or you're also going to be the disciplinarian because if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for you. If I had to put up with it, so do you. Or maybe you swung the pendulum as far as you could to the other side. I don't want anything to do with that kind of a dad. I know what it was like to grow up with a dad who's a disciplinarian, so I don't want to be that way either. Maybe you've swung the pendulum so far to the other side because you want nothing to do with it. But follow the logic that Paul lays out in this balance. Because what he's saying is if you are only a disciplinarian, if the only interaction that you have with your child is that of a disciplinarian, where you are constantly setting up rules and you are constantly adding more rules and you are jumping on your child every time there's a breaking of the rule, when, when there is that constant discipline and that constant getting after, in that moment what you're really doing is neglecting their humanity. You're treating them the way that you might, might train a dog, that you might set up expectations for an animal that you're trying to train and you're forgetting in that moment that your child is very human. So the mark of a disciplinary in that sense is you lay down all the rules, maybe the rules keep changing, the child is always in trouble, every mistake is immediately leapt on, the discipline is handed out, there's never a reason, there's never an explanation, there's never a coaxing or a calling of the child's heart in the middle of those things, it is just a very legalistically driven sort of discipline. And what he's saying here is that is going to lead your child to anger. But likewise, if all you ever do is counsel, if all you ever do is come alongside and explain, if all you ever do is hand out advice and there is no discipline, you are forgetting that they're children and not adults. So I mean, here's the way that this often plays out. If you feel the need to constantly explain and reason with your child and from the very first moments until they reach adulthood, discipline is ignored. You create the expectation that the child only needs to obey when they understand. That the only cause for obedience is when I intellectually agree with what has been instructed to me. But when you have this balance, discipline and counsel, it has a soothing effect and a stabilizing effect. And it counters exasperation and anger. And let me just say by way of confession that I'm probably not the person who should be preaching this sermon. <laughs> I mean, we are figuring this stuff out. My wife and I have conversations about this all the time. So I'm, I'm by no means an expert on any of these things. But I'm just telling you as faithfully as I can what I find in Scripture and how this all makes sense uh, in my mind. But but what he's getting at here is to do this in a way that is God-honoring is to not set your child up for failure. It's to, it's to not build a scenario that leads them into exasperation and anger. And, and ultimately what he says is that parents are to have, to some extent or another, the disposition of a teacher. And not a teacher in the sense of a school, but a teacher in the sense of one who interacts and, and trains and counsels and loves and, yes, lays out expectations and meets out discipline as it's necessary, but is doing all of that with the end goal in mind. Not just reacting 
constantly, but is constantly thinking about the trajectory that they want to see their child on, a trajectory towards the image of Christ, a trajectory towards a life of honor and respect. And so notice how he continues this conversation. He's saying, bring them up in discipline and instruction. So not only is there to be discipline and instruction, but he says bring them up in discipline and instruction. That the balance changes as a child grows older. That when children are little and their comprehension is limited, they need less explanation than they do when they're older. But that ultimately the goal is to instruct and to train them how to think and how to make wise decisions. That you are bringing them up, that you are raising them up, that you're preparing your children to not need you. And even as I say that internally, I cringe because I want my kids to need me. And there's something in me that loves the idea that my kids need me. But the idea is for parents that we are to train them up and raise them in a way where ultimately they will not be dependent on us. That you are leading them to independence and that you are leading them there at the right pace. So, I mean, I've seen examples and we could all think of examples where parents have tried to hold on to their kids for way too long where they are holding on to their children like grim death because they're so scared of decisions their children might make or ways that their children might get hurt or what life looks like for them without their children. There's all kinds of reasons that we don't have time to get into today that leads to those things. But the other side of that is to try to push your, children, your child into independence too early. And either way, what you're doing is you are you are setting them up for exasperation. So to give an illustration of the latter, I remember, I remember early on in ministry having a conversation with a young woman who was trying to figure out a relationship in her life. She'd begun to date this guy, and there were all kinds of red flags that he was not a good guy for her to be around. There was all kinds of red flags that this was not a good relationship and that she should get out of that relationship as quickly as she possibly could have. And she came to me one day and, and started telling me the stories of her interactions with her, her boyfriend. And, and she was talking about how she couldn't figure out what she should do because she liked him, but she saw all these problems in his life. And then she said this. She said, yeah, I reached out to my dad to ask his opinion on it, and I told him all these different things. And his answer was, well, you've just got to figure this out on your own. And my heart just broke for her. I mean, this is a young woman <laughs> who's trying to figure out how to do the right thing and is working through all kinds of complex issues and her father, probably far too early in her life, was telling her, no, you're on your own. See, our tendency can be one way or the other. But the call for the parent is to support them into independence. And so children will, will become exasperated when they're held on too, too tightly or when they're pushed into independence too early. So this is the idea then. Look finally what he says here. He says, bring them up. How? In the Lord. So this is the, this is the idea that you put before your children who God is who he is according to scripture, and who he is in your life. And this is why it is so necessary that you have a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus. Because we see, even in an increasingly irreligious society, it is still not uncommon to hear parents talk about wanting their children to have religious experiences or to be in the church or perhaps to be confirmed or baptized because they want their children to grow up to be better people and to be moral people. 
And certainly within Christendom, we see that often where parents are part of a church and parents do these particular things just because they're trying to set their kids up for a better life. But the problem is, if your relationship with Jesus Christ is not real, if it's manufactured, if it's put on, your kids inevitably will see through that as they grow older. Because they interact with you so often and they learn what you really care about. So the question becomes, what is your relationship with Jesus teaching them about who God is? So my, my most meaningful memories from childhood, at least some of my most meaningful memories from childhood, are mornings where I would wake up early in the morning, often before it was light outside, and I would stumble my way out of, the, out, out of my bedroom, and I would look down the hall, and I'd see that there was a light on in the living room. And as I would walk down that hall and come around the corner, I remember seeing my father sitting in his recliner with his big, large print family study Bible. And I remember he had that thing spread across his lap and it, 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 very early in the morning, I just remember him sitting there with the glasses on the end of his nose, reading God's word. And I remember him talking to us about, about who God is and about what God had done in his life. And he would talk about he and my mother's relationship and marriage and about how he, wouldn't even, he couldn't even imagine the trajectory that they would have been on if they hadn't met Jesus early on in their marriage and just all of those different conversations and it was so real to him. And it was real to the extent that I remember thinking that's the kind of relationship with Jesus that I want. Now if my dad was here, he'd be the first person to say that he's not a perfect person and that he wasn't a perfect dad. But what a gift to give his children. A picture of what it is to be one who is in love with Christ and one who's a follower of Christ. And of all the moral lessons and all the discipline and all the instruction that he gave me, none of those things would have carried any weight with me if I hadn't seen how valuable Jesus was to him. I mean, as someone who's kind of a cynic by nature... If those things at any point had not seemed real, I probably just would have walked away from faith altogether. So to what extent are you having those interactions with your children? To what extent are you praying with them and for them? To what extent are you talking with them about your faith, about who Jesus Christ is in your life, about the kind of love that God has for you and also the kind of love that he has for them? I remember one time Dave praying for me in a, in a conversation, and, and I was so struck by something he said, and it's something that I pray now consistently with other people and with my own family, which is I remember he said, uh, praying for Leo and Harvey, he said, would they never know a day where they do not know the love of Christ? And it just, in that moment, just hit me like a ton of bricks. That my goal isn't for my kids to be good, though I want them to be. And my goal isn't that they would end up being good citizens, though I hope they are. But that I want my kids to know the love of Christ. To experience it in such a real and tangible way that it's transformative. And where they're going to see that first and foremost is in the life of myself and my wife. So practically, the way this looks in our home is we pray for and, we, and with our kids. We sing to our boys and with our boys. And we read a children's Bible that's really, really great. And I can give you the name of it if you want it. 
We talk about God's goodness all the time, but most often it's things that are very simple. Like when we go for a walk and we see a beautiful sunset and we talk about, man, can you even believe that God created something like that? That he created something so beautiful and so purposeful to, to show us his love for us. And we'll sit down at a meal and we'll talk about how good the food is and talk about how incredible it is that God made food that had these kinds of tastes. And to some extent, and I pray that this continues, to some extent our boys have started to internalize that, even at their young age. I mean, just this week, my son came out of his bedroom and he came into our room and he told us that he'd woke up in the middle of the night and that he wasn't feeling well. And I said, oh, buddy, why didn't you come tell us? And he goes, well, I prayed to Jesus. And I just, you know, lost it. And then he shared with us that he'd been praying for Jessica as well. I mean, those are the neat things in our life. But in all of these as we think about how to do this, the answer is to look to who you are in Christ. So why do some fathers lack the desire to train and instead just become harsh disciplinarians? I mean, maybe it's because they're not finding uh, sufficient satisfaction in their own father. Maybe instead they're looking to the approval of other people. If my kids can be good enough, people will think highly of me. Or conversely, if you're a father who doesn't discipline, maybe it's because you're trying to gain your child's approval. Either way, are you living out of the acceptance that you have in Jesus? In Jesus, you are accepted, and therefore you are free to sacrificially love and discipline your child. Or maybe, as a mom, you struggle with the tension of providing safety versus independence and figuring out where that balance is. Maybe you're scared of your kids falling short or getting hurt, so you just attempt to control, forgetting that ultimately if God is going to take care of the birds of the air, he's going to take care of you. Or maybe you're just tired, and you're ready to be rid of dependent children. You're tired and you're worn out, you understand that it is only the gospel that empowers and allows you to see that there is eternal value to the work that you're doing. That in the gospel, you're free to care and love for your children in a way that helps them to see the gospel and know the gospel that you also believe. And that's the centrifugal nature of the gospel. That it doesn't end with you, but that it keeps working its way out. It works its way out in your children and in your relationships that it's always pushing out. And the example for all of this is that our God is a father. He's a father who loves well and who pursues well. He's a father that trains and teaches. He's a father that counsels and gives guidance. He's a father that gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to lead us, to encourage us, to convict us. And he's also a father who disciplines that he doesn't discipline out of anger or harshness or mistreatment, that he doesn't discipline because he's mad or even because he's disappointed, but he disciplines because he loves. That even in his discipline, it is a gracious reminder of the fact that we belong to him. That even in his discipline, it is a demonstration of his love. And so my prayer is that we as a church would be those who are marked by this sort of attitude, not only as mothers and fathers within the context of a family, but also as spiritual mothers and fathers. That we would understand the gospel in such a way that it cannot help but seep into every area of our life. When you recognize God as the good father, 
It transforms every other relationship you have. It enables you to be what God has called you to be, regardless of what you've experienced and regardless of ways you've been disappointed or hurt. And it enables you to rest in the perfect love and discipline of a gracious Father. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I realize that this is a topic that requires far more than one Sunday morning to begin to, to digest. But Lord, in this moment, we thank you for instruction that is simple, instruction that is meaningful, and God, even in its simplicity, it's incredibly difficult for us. We find ourselves broken in our relationships in all sorts of ways as a result of what we've experienced or ways that we've had expectations that have gone unmet. We find ourselves reacting out of our own selfishness, our own indignation or our own insecurities. And so God, my prayer is for, for all of us as your children is that we would first and foremost rest in your perfect love, that we would rest safe and secure in the arms of our Father that we would find our security and our hope in you. God, is, even as we sang this morning, that those that you save are your delight, that you will hold us fast, that we're precious in your holy sight, that you will not allow our souls to be lost, that your promises last, and that we're bought by you at such a cost that we know you hold us fast. God, would we rest in promises of songs like that and would we parent and love others out of that same understanding. So we thank you for who you are and it's in your name we pray.